This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way as the world expects us to think or arrive at our destinations the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and then they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is a native of Las Cruces. He's an Army veteran who served in Operation Desert Storm. He's a retired sheriff's captain, and he is pursuing a Bachelor of Science in Nursing locally. Welcome to the show, Michael Kinney. Thank you. It's good to be here again. Right? Again. Uh, we, we won't go into that, <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll keep that in the uh, Square Peg Podcast vault. Um, <laughs> so you, uh, you know, maybe I should, should start out. I think everybody by this time knows kind of what the, the theme of the square peg podcast is. And, uh, some guests are more obvious than others, how they're square pegs and how they may not, uh, fit into, you know, the way the world <clears throat> thinks that they should fit for, uh, what they do for a living or where they live or what kind of lifestyle they lead. Um, in your case, it's kind of a, a tale of two careers, and uh, we've addressed uh, these tales before on the Square Peg podcast. I'm interested in in getting into what uh, you're doing. Of course, you spent a career in law enforcement, and now you're pursuing nursing. But you grew up here uh, in Las Cruces in the 90s and se- 1970s uh, and 1980s. Tell me a little bit. Uh, you know, looking back, it's almost uh, you're almost 50 years old. We're 2020, and um, Las Cruces 20 years ago, 22 years ago, when I moved here, was a much different place. I would imagine uh, it was uh, even more different uh, in the 1970s. Uh, yeah, you know, Las Cruces, when I was growing up, was was probably about the, a third of the size that it is now. Um, and even back then, I think we were a very uh, tight-knit community. Uh, even so now, we used to say, and I think it's still a thing, but we used to say that, you know, Las Cruces is, is always going to be a small town. And, and now it's a big town, but it still has a very much a small town feel to it. You know, somebody knows somebody who's related to somebody who's related to somebody. Um, that's just kind of how it is here in Cruces. So you, some things have changed as far as size and <clears throat> technology and things of that nature, but in some ways it has remained the same that it always has been, in my opinion. Do you feel like, and this is something that I actually just kind of thought of, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've thought a lot about uh, the time I've spent here in Las Cruces. It's American Southwest is kind of out of the way. It's... Uh, there aren't really any sizable cities that are close to other sizable cities. I mean, we've got El Paso right down the road, but it's a good three-hour drive to Albuquerque, a uh, good four-hour drive to, to Tucson, and another couple hours to Phoenix. I would imagine the world is a lot more connected uh, today than it was years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, if one of the downfalls of, of growing up, uh, a child growing up in Las Cruces, is you're not going to have uh, the kind of cultural diversity, you're not going to be exposed to really too many different types of people from different cultures and different races and different religions. But with the connectivity that the Internet brings us and satellite and cable television and TikTok and all the different apps, I think we have a better opportunity now. Um, do you see that as a huge difference? I mean, how, how big of a jump do you see as somebody who did grow up in Las Cruces at a time where you really, for lack of a better term, were kind of isolated from uh, a lot of what was going on outside your sphere? Um, I, I think there has been some some changes and improvements, but I think that that southern New Mexico, maybe New Mexico in general, and, and definitely Las Cruces, um, we have always been kind of a um, a culturally diverse city anyway, because as you know from history that that New Mexico was populated both by by uh, people who are ethnically or nat- nationally Mexican and, you know, Europeans that came through here. We had the Spaniards come through, and then the United States expanded here. Uh, even parts of New Mexico were part of the Confederacy. 
uh, at a few points. So we've got we've always been somewhat culturally diverse when you mix the Hispanic and the Anglo culture here. Um, you know, there are there are uh, famous historical names that you know, like Hernandez, and we also have famous historical names like Hadley and uh, things of that nature. Um, so I, I think starting off, I think that we were already pretty cultural, culturally diverse. Um, but, you know, the information age, as it's come in, is I think it's just expanded it more. Um, the only real difference I see is that we now seem to have a more ethnically diverse culture. There's more African-Americans here than there were before uh, growing up, uh, Asian-Americans, uh, things of that nature. Well, having a large state university locally here probably helps that a lot. But another thing that, you know, I hadn't thought of before I moved out here, and not something that um, is a feeling that I really get too often because I'm not a native from here and I'm, I'm not Hispanic, but, you know, from time to time you'll hear, I have one friend I'm thinking of, thinking of particularly who likes to talk about those pinchy norteños up in uh, Santa Fe. Uh, and, and I thought about that when you mentioned you know, the people with, with uh, Mexican heritage here mm-hmm. and, and the difference between um, the, the influence of, of the more native, if you will, uh, Mexican influence on southern New Mexico versus the Spanish influence uh, up north. Is that a kind of, is that a feeling you've ever had or is that something that was ever a feeling in your family growing up? Um, not really in my family. Um, I, I believe that there are some cultural differences um, between southern and northern New Mexico. Um, and I think part of it is because there's a there was a heavier Spanish influence up north as well as a higher Native American influence. Um, one thing that that personally just strikes me is I don't like the food in northern New Mexico. I, I don't think it's, you know, Mexican food up there to me is as lousy as Tex-Mex is to me. <laughs> um, I'm very much, uh, uh, I very much love the southern New Mexico um, palate. And I think it's a lot different up north. Well, I never I noticed think- that. I never noticed that more than the first time I really went to Santa Fe uh, and spent a weekend there and went to a restaurant and had a. <laughs> I'm laughing as I think about it. I had a, I had a tacos on a, on blue corn tortillas, and that's definitely not something you would you would ever nobody would ever attempt here in southern New Mexico. As an interesting side note, you know where I grew up in Vienna, Virginia, uh, right outside the Beltway. There was uh, a restaurant uh, that soon expanded to two, and now apparently they're all over Northern Virginia, called Anita's New Mexico-style Mexican food. And she's from Santa Fe. And, um, you know, I used to eat there all the time growing up, and, and, you know, I moved here in 1998. It was not long after that. I went back, and we went to Anita's, and I thought to myself, this food sucks. Yeah. It's, it's it's not that good. And I couldn't tell whether it was because it was northern New Mexico influenced or because it really wasn't real Mexican food. I don't know. But and it's something I hadn't thought of until you had brought up the, you know, the difference in the in the northern and southern New Mexico palates. Now, you grew up growing up here in southern New Mexico. You have an Anglo name, uh, but your family, you do have half of your family is uh, Hispanic, correct? Yes. Um, my mother's side of the family is actually originated um, here in Las Cruces um, and certain parts of Mexico. Um, my paternal side uh, came this way via uh, Denver, and uh, kind of you can watch my family history as it kind of marches west across the U.S. Um, and I'm actually, I believe, only fourth generation off the boat from Ireland uh, on my dad's side of the family. And so I would imagine uh, with having, well, if you're if you were talking about Irish and um, you know Mexican Hispanics. Uh, you probably had a pretty large family. Uh, being someone uh, with with an Anglo last name and an obviously an Anglo uh, appearing skin tone, uh, what what was it like uh, within your own family? Were there rivalries? Were there problems being accepted? I would imagine you had more of your mother's side of the family uh, here locally than your father's. Uh, that's correct. Um, pretty much. Uh... I, actually, I think I've got one cousin and an aunt that lives here on my father's side. Um, my mother's side, yes, I've got several cousins and aunts and uncles that, that either live here in Las Cruces or somewhere close by. Um, but growing up, um, when I was born in the in the early 70s, um, it's, it, I, it seems kind of silly now because I don't think that generally our culture feels that way, but... 
it was technically considered a, an interracial uh, marriage with my my parents. Um, and growing up, I was always a bit of an outsider because I was too white for the brown kids and too brown for the white kids. Uh, but as far as my family goes, um, I was the first grandchild uh, on either side, so I was kind of the kid that brought everybody back together um, or brought them together because I was the first grandchild. Um, so they so- really... The, cool. Yeah, so there really wasn't that much, at least within my family, any kind of, um, you know, uh, racial intolerance or strangeness. Uh, probably the biggest hurdle was communication. And your mother is a uh, obviously a Spanish speaker. Were there? Did she have any issues? Did she? What was her first language? Uh, she started off speaking Spanish, um, and eventually learned English. And she very much. Uh, she told me a long time ago, and I hope if she listens to this, she's not too embarrassed by it, but uh, she made a, a concerted effort <clears throat> to sound white, um, for lack of a better explanation, um, because she didn't, being married to my dad, she didn't want to be considered, um, you know, an uneducated Mexican. And if you speak to my mother on the phone or you talk to her, um you know, you would never guess that she's Hispanic and that Spanish was her first language. She has zero accent at all. Well, I would imagine that the 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 real part of that is Spanish having been her first language, because I think, I mean, you certainly have lived around here long enough. Uh, I've here, lived here long enough. There are a lot of people with Hispanic surnames and brown skin who don't speak a word of Spanish uh, and have no, for lack of a, you know, they, they have an accent, but it's, it's more of a, a Las Cruces or southern New Mexico accent. Now, growing up uh, here in Las Cruces, your father was a police officer here locally, um, and you were kind of a wild child, if you will. Um, oil and water, I mean, were there certain things that were expected of you that, that you, obviously, being the wild child, you, you went against, going against the grain? Um, what was that like? Well, um, you know, and I, I have to qualify it. I mean, I was a wild child, but not in the sense that, you know, I was out starting fires or stealing cars or anything like that. Um, looking back on it, I have to say that, that, and my parents would probably tell you, that my, my favorite question in the world was why. I was always questioning things. I, I grew up my whole life questioning why things are the way that they are. Um, and was very opinionated as a youth, and I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't accept a lot of the restrictions put on me. So I was I was somewhat rebellious. I would... I, I would not take my parents' advice. I would not follow their lead, not follow their guide. Uh, and it got me into a little bit of trouble here and there. I, I did terribly in school, and um, I was just basically unruly and uncooperative for most of my childhood. Now, you had an experience uh, that I just learned about recently uh, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of pointed you or, or planted the seed in your head uh, that that would eventually lead to you pursuing this now second career uh, in nursing, and it had to do with a uh, motor vehicle accident. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell me about that. Um, I actually, I actually had uh, there, there was two two incidents. Um, well, one incident and something else. But basically, what happened was um, my mother was a was a registered nurse here, and she had worked at uh, one of the local hospitals, and. Uh, I was, I was interested in science, and I was interested in medicine, um, and I had gone so far as a, as a Boy Scout at the time. I had taken all the first aid courses and everything else, <clears throat> and uh, one day uh, we, were, we were heading to Walmart, where the Walmart used to be, where Hobby Lobby is now, and uh, there was a, a road called Trevise that runs um, from where we lived to the Walmart. And at that time, um, there was large sections of sections of it that uh, did not have sidewalks, and it had just rained. And unbeknownst to us, there had been a, an older woman who was walking home from Walmart to one of those apartments, and she walked around large puddles because there was no sidewalks, and she was walking in the road, and she was struck by a uh, <clears throat> a vehicle coming down Travis, and we arrived seconds after it happened. And my 
that we saw a crowd of people standing over someone who was laying in the road and my mom rolled down the window and someone was screaming, does anyone know CPR? And so my mom pulled off to the side of the road and we both got out and uh, my mother and I did CPR on this woman until what seemed like hours later, an ambulance arrived and we managed to keep the uh, woman who'd been struck alive, um, long enough to to at least get to the hospital and i had heard that she had uh later died when she got there and that just kind of lit a fire in me um i just thought i was excited and fascinated and and just entranced with you know being able to do something like that for someone to keep them alive even though eventually it wasn't successful and as a result um i uh started getting any kind of book or information that I could about medicine. And in my junior high library, I found a book um, that was about a, uh, an intern in an emergency room in a, in a large city. I, um, if memory serves, it's Bellevue. I've tried several times to find this book since, but I can't find it now. And um, I was just hooked. I was so fascinated by this book. And so I stole all my mom's textbooks nursing textbooks and read them cover to cover and I was on track to um, go to medical school uh, or that's that was my goal and then life takes turns right after, yeah life takes a turn and uh, I ended up not going that route and so, ended up in the military law enforcement but and, the turn the turn uh, you took more more uh, you know closely or closer to that that time uh, you ended up becoming a father at a fairly young age. Yes, I was a teenage father. And um, t- let's talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, well, right around this time, about a year after all this had happened, uh, I discovered girls, and uh, I fell in love with a particular young lady, and one thing led to another, and when I was 16, and she was 15, uh, she ended up pregnant. And um, without going into, you know, all the boring details, what ended up happening was um, I quit school to um, find a job and support her and the baby. Um, and we just, we couldn't make it um, in what I was, what I was doing, uh, where I was going. And we ended up... Um, giving my daughter up for adoption. And then, unfortunately, a few months right after that, uh, she ended up pregnant again. So during this time, I had made some efforts to try to get into the university. I I figured I would try nursing uh, as a stepping stone into medicine. And when she ended up pregnant again, I pulled out of school and enlisted in the military, um, again, with the intent of trying to care for my family. And uh, things just didn't quite work out the way they should have. And we ended up giving my second daughter up for adoption. Uh, the only bright spot to that that I can, I can say is, is that uh, we had the opportunity to actually select um, the adoptive parents and my second daughter went to the same couple that had adopted my first daughter. So, um, both my daughters had been adopted, but they were adopted by the same family and they're blood sisters and grew up together as sisters. Well, and, and this all happened with, uh, you know, making the decision to create the adoption plan for your second daughter happened while you were in basic training, correct? Correct. And I know that, you know, as an adoptive parent, um, of course I, uh, not a birth parent, but I know that number one, you know, making that decision to create an adoption plan for your child is is obviously the most uh, selfless thing uh, you know a person can do, and it's done for for reasons that I think we all understand. You you want the best for your child, and you're not able to give it to them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's a, there's a grieving process, and there is a sense of loss. I understand. You, I don't I don't even imagine you had an opportunity to process all of that uh, dealing with the. Uh, all that goes along with uh, Army basic training. Yeah, I mean, you know, not at all. 
um, it was the only way I can explain it is that it's it's very much like like what I would imagine the death of a child would be uh, because they're there and then they're not and even though I knew that they were alive and well um, there's still that sense of of foreboding that you know something's going to happen to them and, and there's nothing that I can do to affect that and now the people that adopted them both are just they were amazing people um, we got to meet them uh, like I said, we got to select them, um, and they're wonderful people. And we had, um, it was still new when this all occurred, but we had an open adoption with them. So the first five years, we got regular cards and visits and uh, things of that nature. Um, so we knew that they were doing well. Um, but all of this happened um, before my 19th birthday. So I had, you know, two children, two children given up for adoption, um, a, a divorce, a uh, and going to war all before my 19th birthday. And yeah. so, if that wasn't all enough, uh, you you had the honor of uh, being deployed over to uh, Iraq to serve in Operation Desert Storm. Now you were uh, involved. Uh, what was your MOS at the time? It had something to do with explosives, right? It was uh, double. Uh, I'm sorry. It was twelve Bravo, which is uh, which is combat combat engineer. Okay. And were you over there? Uh, I believe things kicked off January of 1991. <clears throat> uh, actually, it started in um, August of 1990. The build up. Um, the, yeah, the build up um, started in August of 1990, and um, actually, I would have <laughs> I would have graduated. If I had stayed in school, I would have graduated in May of 1990. Um, and we actually deployed um, the Monday after Thanksgiving in 1990 is when we actually shipped to Iraq. But we had been doing the buildup about a month before, uh, preparing vehicles, getting shots, all that kind of stuff. And uh, actual combat operations started in January of 91. Were you uh, involved in any of the, those uh, hostilities directly? Yes, I was, unfortunately. And, um, you know, at some point, uh, I know towards the end of your term, uh, your, your enlistment there in the Army, you, you did have the ability to switch to something a little bit more in line with what you, I'm sure at the time, thought it still thought was going to be your next move in life. But before we move on, um, you know, for reasons that, like I said, will stay in the Square Peg podcast vault, um, this next segment, uh, the Jabroni of the Week segment, has been kind of the the element of surprise has been a little bit uh, eliminated. But I I do have a four man tournament, uh, four person tournament. I'm going to throw at you. Uh, you need to tell me first off between uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, who's the bigger Jabroni? Junior. And between Stuttering Henry and uh, Napoleon Fonzarelli, who is the bigger Jabroni? Ooh. <laughs> so our finals are Napoleon Fonzarelli versus uh, Donald Trump Jr. Who is the number one jabroni? It's got to be Fonzarelli. Napoleon Fonzarelli is your jabroni of the week. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. You can find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't figured it out, the Jabroni of the Week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Uh, in any case, Michael, you uh, got your separation from the Army in what year? Uh, 1983. And how long was it before you followed uh, in your father's footsteps and uh, became a police officer with the Las Cruces Police Department? Uh, it was about a year, year and a half. I had actually um, <clears throat> extended my release date, and my intention was to um, go to the police academy. And I had all the dates squared away, everything else, and I had actually timed my, my uh, ending of service uh, to where I would be able to move to Las Cruces and basically just jump right into uh, 
um, the Law Enforcement Academy. Unfortunately, when I arrived here in Las Cruces and, you know, came with hat in hand and my application and the other to uh, sign up for the academy, um, I had discovered that they had moved the dates up and I had actually missed my opportunity to apply for the academy. And um, they basically told me, thank you very much, you know, try again next year. So I had to spend about a year, year and a half uh, doing various jobs uh, just trying to keep a roof over my head until I was able to apply for the academy. And I had done that based upon the uh, recommendation of my father at the time because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I, I still had some, I think, some residual um, problems uh, related to combat operations, and I just didn't really feel comfortable going into a college environment um, trying to go to school to do something that I wanted to do. And my father recommended um, trying law enforcement uh, because he had been a, a police officer. And it's kind of like, you know, old Las Cruces thing. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I was familiar with a large number of the people who were actually in charge of the local police department. Um, so it wasn't really kind of like I know a lot of my, my friends and and uh, compatriots in law enforcement, um, I never had the feeling that it was a calling. Something so you just kind of fell into. Felt. Yeah, it, it was It was kind of like it was a means to an end. I, I figured it's a good way to get health insurance, have a steady paycheck, and like my dad had told me at the time, hey, it means a legal gun. So uh, well, it just kind of seemed to fall into place. Now, you spent how many years with the Las Cruces Police Department? Six. And it was, I want to say, 2000, 1999, 2000, around that time when you uh, made the jump over to the Doniana County Sheriff's Office. Correct. And you eventually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it seems to me, and I know you're, you're a second-generation police officer, I know your father was uh, very heavily involved in, in the Motors Division and all the uh, you know, crash reconstruction and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, it wasn't long before you found your way into the traffic division. Uh, you were riding a motorcycle, and really not long after that before you were a supervisor in that division. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it seemed like forever to me. Um, when I first started, I really didn't want to have anything to do with traffic. I didn't want to work under my father's shadow. Um, but basically, I learned very quickly that um, – in law enforcement, there are really only a few highly technical um, areas of law enforcement. Um, not to say that, that police officers are dumb or anything like that, but really it doesn't take a whole lot of brain power to do patrol and a couple of other things um, that people generally associate with law enforcement. But to be, to be a detective, to be... Um, you know, a traffic officer, things of that nature, you have to have a little bit of sparks and you have to have some advanced technical knowledge in order to be successful at working those kinds of cases. So eventually I gravitated towards um, more technical aspects of law enforcement and through some political interactions and, you know, some, you know, typical <laughs> uh, competition with other people, I just felt like Las Cruces PD was not the place for me anymore. And uh, at that time, a, a, a relative and friend of mine who had been a supervisor had been elected sheriff, and he lured me over to the sheriff's department uh, with promises of starting uh, some technical divisions within BSL. And um, I... I believed him enough that I took a $5 an hour pay cut to move from the city to the county. And you ended up not only, like I said, uh, making your way to the traffic division uh, onto the motorcycles when the sheriff's department still had motors. Uh, and then you ended up, uh, if I remember correctly, corporal, sergeant, and lieutenant, you were uh, still in the traffic division, correct? Correct. And not only, uh, and, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, and I think part of that was because of the fact that, um, since traffic was so technical um, and I had had quite a bit of training, it always seemed to me that, that 
most other supervisors in the department were were kind of afraid of it. Um, they kind of looked at it as like witch doctors. It was like, how do you figure that stuff out? And uh, so I think that's what helped to keep me in place for as long as I was there. Well, I mean, not only were you a super, uh, supervisor there, and not only uh, did you go to and graduate from and get the certifications at some of the more uh, difficult uh, schools and, and, and trainings that you kind of you can go to in law enforcement, you ended up teaching all of the uh, advanced uh, you know, crash reconstruction and things that require a lot of knowledge of physics and vehicle dynamics and calculus and um, things that, you know, as you and I have talked about many times over the years, are I, I would consider to be ab- above my above my head uh, or above my <laughs> my level of understanding. Uh, but in any case, you know, it, it's not uncommon. And a lot of the best police officers I've known are people who don't have uh, any bit of education uh, after they graduate high school, and and people for whom sitting behind a desk uh, is just nothing that they ever figured was in their future. However, when they got into law enforcement and found something within that job that they they really enjoyed doing, they wanted to do, and if it required you to sit behind a desk and go to a class for a couple weeks uh, and and do recertifications every now and again, that was okay because it was something they really wanted to do. And you really took the bull behind you know bull by the horns and and uh, ended up teaching, like I said, some of the more difficult uh, aspects of of law enforcement, things like crash reconstruction. Now, you didn't end your career in traffic. You ended up moving on, uh, I believe, working in professional standards, which is commonly referred to as internal affairs. I know that you were the captain of the Criminal Investigations Division. Uh, And then you finished things up uh, as patrol captain. You retired in 2016 or 2017 after how many years? Uh, I retired in 2017 after 24 years. And when did you start? Let's put it this way. At what point did you realize that once you retired from law enforcement, you were going to go about, uh, into nursing and pursue that medical field? Well, it it actually it, it occurred in the span of about six months. Um, we had had a, a new sheriff come in, um, and he had made some pretty significant changes in the department that I just did not agree with, and I did not agree with the environment that I was working in. And... Uh, Typically, um, at the end of the year, over Christmas and New Year's, um, you know, rank has this privileges. I would, I would typically take a couple of weeks off uh, to spend with my family. Um, my wife is a is a school teacher, so she's off, you know, from mid December to early January, and so I I would always take um, that same time off so that we could all be together as a family. And um, I had. I had been uh, the patrol captain for about eight months at that point, and I really just felt like I was a fish out of water um, because, I, honestly, I had only worked patrol maybe three of the 24 years that I had been a police officer. The rest of the time I was either in traffic, CID, or uh, some other kind of specialized uh, unit. And... You know, patrol just was not in my life's blood, and I I hated it there. Um, there were there were men and women there that that I felt and still feel were just far more suited to that kind of uh, environment than I was. Um, just it did not speak to me, and uh, with a lot of the political baloney that was going on at the time, um, I was on leave for Christmas, and I told my wife, you know what, I just I, I don't want to go back. I, I I've had enough. I'm, I've done everything that I think that I can do. Um, I want to move on and, and do something that I want to do for a living because, you know, the magic had been lost for me. So I decided um, that uh, we'd, had a, we'd had a homicide case, and I had gone to uh, OMI in Albuquerque for an autopsy, and I remembered... Uh, and I remember thinking that, that you know what, I, I could do that. I mean, I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I thought, well, you know what, I wonder, if, I wonder if you don't have to go to school to become a doctor of pathology as long as you do to be like a, you know, a family practitioner or an emergency room doctor or any of those things. So I started looking into it over Christmas holiday, and I discovered that, that a pathologist goes to school just as long as, as every other doctor. Um, 
And so that kind of shot some holes in that idea. And my mother, who, um, like I told you, she had started out as an RN. She was an RN for 20 years, and then she became a nurse practitioner for another 20 and was working for the health department here. Um, she had just retired, and she had, in discussing this with her, she had recommended that I look into becoming a nurse and maybe even a nurse practitioner uh, somewhere down the road. So I started looking into it and decided, you know what, this is the direction that I want to go. So I had, over the years, I had built up a significant amount of leave that I wasn't going to get back. I wasn't going to cash out. So I started, uh, I enrolled in, in college in January 2017, and uh, I would take leave over the course of the week, and I would go to class. Well, And, and decided to pull the pin, and ironically enough, I retired on April Fool's Day 2017. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'd forgotten about that. Um you know, in any case, uh, here in New Mexico, public employees, police officers for a long time, uh, I believe up until 2013, had the oppor- opportunity or the option to retire uh, as soon as uh, 20 years. Uh, and now the minimum is 25. You see a lot of guys who do retire at the same age you did, in the mid-40s, uh, and obviously have to go and do something. Uh, a lot of them go work in hardware, uh, big hardware chains, or, or work uh, at least in some capacity related uh, to what they were doing in law enforcement, either security, uh, White Sands or NASA or, or at the, for the mm-hmm. schools, you know, and, and that would be something that isn't going to take uh, really, if any, isn't going to take a whole lot of retraining to, to go from a career uh, where you've done a lot of training and trained a lot of people. You're in your mid forties to go to something that's going to take uh, a four year degree Certainly not something that would be taken lightly. Now, did you have to literally start at scratch with all your 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 basic English and your bio, your 100 level bios, and all those things uh, at school? Yes, I started at the bottom, just like I was a an 18 year old freshman. Because um, at this point, it had been nearly 30 years before since I had been in in school in public school. Um, I dropped out in the, uh, the very beginning of my 10th grade year, and um, I had not had any other than technical schools in the military and as a, a law enforcement officer, I had not had any formal education up to that point. So um, I actually, I had to start off with the uh, with the remedial math, the remedial English, uh, remedial everything, and that's those were the classes that I that I took uh, started taking in January, and uh, had to build up all of my um, prerequisites before I could even apply to nursing school. Now, anybody who knows you, Michael, knows that confidence is not something you've ever been short on, uh, and and <laughs> and having accomplished uh, the things you did with with uh, not only learning but eventually teaching the, the the courses you did in law enforcement. Is there at any moment, at any moment, while you're starting this journey? any wonder whether you can oh absolutely um i i think that i pushed well not think i know that i pushed off even attempting anything in college um for a very long time because i lacked the confidence to do it um my wife my parents had all pushed me at various points over the years to at least go and get my prerequisites um and my excuse at the time was, well, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what kind of degree I want to get. And a lot of them had pushed me to at least get prerequisites or the, the standardized classes that everybody has to take, English and biology and all that kind of stuff, chemistry. And um, I just I, I, I shied away from it because I didn't think I could do it. It had been so long since I had been in school. I always had that inner voice in my head, hey, buddy, you're a high school dropout. What makes you think that you can handle college? And um, finally, in 2015, 2016, I got the opportunity to go to um, a leadership school uh, for the sheriff's department. And it was, uh, it was a, a six-month course put on by uh, Northwestern University. And I got to go. And it's their college level classes, and that really kind of proved to myself that I was capable of um, handling my own when it came to college level classes, and it didn't seem quite as intimidating. 
Um, then once I started college, it's also intimidating when majority of the people that are in the class with you are, you know, half your age or young enough to be your children, and in some cases, grandchildren. Um, so that that's always been a thing. But I think I've I've managed to blend well with with my cohort. Now you're pursuing a uh, full bachelor's of science in nursing, and you are graduating this spring. Yes, I should graduate in May. And you, uh, I know you've been doing a lot of clinicals here lately. Uh, I would imagine that anybody who's in either medical school or nursing school right now is probably having the benefit, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the unfortunate pandemic we're dealing with. You're having the benefit of, of, of certain challenges that, you know, nobody alive before you has ever had to deal with. And, you know, hopefully nobody uh, going to school in the next couple decades will have to deal with. Um I understand you're, you know, you're taking all the precautions you can take, but it's got to be a little bit with all the time you're spending uh, in hospitals. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you do plan on going uh, into a, pursuing at least a position in emergency medicine. Uh, you got to be on your toes all the time. I, along the lines of you, you, you know, me asking you what kind of confidence you had in your ability to, to, to complete this and whether there were any doubts, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're probably – going to be graduating in the top few people in your class well that's the hope yes <laughs> that's the hope where do you stand now i mean are you pretty close to that i i think i'm pretty close i'm i'm probably def, definitely within the top 10 percent now do you um we have two hospitals here soon to be three in las cruces uh none of which has a a, a top level trauma rating uh do you hope to to work here in las cruces uh do you hope to pursue something down in el paso at university medical center what's the plan well, as it stands right now, um, I actually received a, a small scholarship uh, from a uh, an insurance company here in New Mexico, um, based upon my my academic uh, prowess. And um, one of the agreements to it is I have to work within New Mexico for at least one year. Um, so, first, get, once I graduate, um, then I have to, of course, I have to take a, a national certification exam the NCLEX. And uh, once I do that, I plan to work hopefully here in Las Cruces um, at uh, one hospital, which is higher, uh, higher rated trauma level um, than some of the others. After that, once I get a, a year or two of experience, um, then I'm, pro I'm the goal is to continue my education and, and um, get a doctorate in nursing practice, which will effectively make me a doctor, not a physician, but a nurse practitioner, um, with a with a doctorate. And uh, during the summers, I'm hoping to, when my wife is off from school, hoping to uh, do some travel nursing and maybe at some uh, big level trauma centers, um, like in California, Arizona, things of that nature. Well, um, not to steal a term from our, well, I don't even like to say his name, but. Uh, we're kind of rounding the corner here on the final segment of our show, and, and I think that I have an interesting opportunity here. You, you got the joke, obviously. Um, you know, there's a lot been said uh, these last several months uh, dealing with issues that, unfortunately, we've dealt with uh, for far too long in the United States. Uh, everybody knows the name George Floyd. Uh, if the conversation hadn't been in high gear before that, it's definitely been in high gear since uh, his untimely mm -hmm. and unfortunate and tragic death uh, at the hands of a police officer. As somebody who spent 24 years in law enforcement and uh, who knows quite a bit about the legal uh, aspects surrounding police use of force, and as somebody who's been a, a almost as high-ranking as you can be in the sheriff's department, you've been on the command staff level, you've been an administrator, can you just, without, I mean, obviously we could spend weeks and weeks talking about this, Give me your thoughts on on the on the police reform movement, or the movement towards police reform, the idea of police reform, and and what you if you if you could make all of the decisions, what is the kind of reform that you would like to see happen? Well, I, I would. One of the things I've been struck by, and and it's kind of a weird bridge between nursing and, and law enforcement, but one of the things that I was struck by is that every semester that I've been in nursing school, there has been a a, a very uh, strong focus on ethics and responsibilities as a nurse. Um, I feel that, that 
law enforcement, and this is not, again, this is not to say that law enforcement is unethical, but I think that there needs to be a redesign, redeployment of the way that we talk about it, and that needs to be first and foremost. Because very much like a nurse, as a police officer, you have the ultimate authority um, that is granted to any person, and what that is is the ability to take a life um, legally and lawfully. And I think, you know, like they say in the Spider-Man movies, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that there needs to be a, a better focus on using that authority more responsibly. Um, I think that, that there are a number of things that could be done uh, to reform law enforcement. I think, I, and uh, let me say I agree with it. I, I agree that law enforcement does need some reform. Um probably starting with accountability. Um, this is not to say that I agree with people burning down cities and things of that nature, but I've had several discussions about this, and while I may not agree with it, I certainly understand it because I think a lot of the people that are engaging in this feel that they have no power, they have no voice, and that no one will listen to them. So if nothing else good comes out of the writing and, and things that have happened like that, um, I think that it at least has got us talking about it um, in a way that has never been done before. Um, I think that the, the it, this is not something that, that could be, even if I was in charge, if I was king of the world, this is not something I think that could be fixed overnight. This is going to be a probably a multi-decade process, but I think that we do need to take a few steps forward on this. You know, Mike... And, Go ahead and Go ahead. finish your thought. Go ahead and finish your thought, Michael. Well, and I was just going to say, I think that I think that that begins with um, we need to address and fix how accountability, um, how police officers are held accountable for their actions or inactions. You talk about accountability just very quickly. Uh, are you are you thinking of qualified immunity when you say that? I'm thinking of uh, qualified immunity. Um, and just uh, in policy and the way that the law works, because really, uh, you know, good or bad, police officers just don't face accountability and, and for a lot of their actions or inactions. And um, I think that's, that's a shame, and I think that is, is what a lot of people are upset and angry about. And this is not something new. This has been going on, at least in my memory, since the Rodney King incident. Well, you, uh, you, you know, I have you and I have always had this kind of interesting understanding, and in that uh, we share a very similar worldview, very similar uh, similar ideolo ideology politically, um, and that has kind of cast us uh, aside, made us kind of you know outcasts uh, among certain groups. And you and I had a week or two ago a very interesting back and forth uh, on an issue involving you know what was once a high profile. Uh, incident of using a use of deadly force involving law enforcement and you and I you know we texted it was this was the discussion we had on Facebook on something I had posted and I texted you about a week later saying hey I really enjoyed that you know uh, that back and forth we had and 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 you kind of came back with well that's you know one of the reasons we get along so well and it was for me it was refreshing to get some pushback uh, if you will some disagreement from somebody who who was from law enforcement and and somebody who actually knows what they're talking about which kind of leads me to the next thing I want to ask you about. We really are running out of time, but I do want to – this is something very important. And, and as you know, on the Square Peg podcast, we don't do politics. But mm -hmm. I have this really unique opportunity because of who you are and the relationship we have and your, your experiences and your opinions. I really want to ask you, and believe it or not, this episode is going to air uh, on – it's going to become available on Election Day. Um oh. Very difficult thing for a lot of people to understand is how anybody who works in law enforcement today could support the Biden Harris ticket given the following. And just assuming somebody like me who agrees with 95% of their ideology, when you hear Joe Biden, who we know knows better, but when you see a video clip of him suggesting that police officers try to shoot somebody in the leg, you and I both know that that's unrealistic for a million reasons. He knows that's unrealistic. When you hear 
his running mate, Kamala Harris, who was, if I'm not mistaken, the Attorney General of California. I know she was a district attorney in San Francisco. I know as district attorney she has had to review uh, deadly force incidents and make decisions based on the lawfulness uh, of those actions. When she tweets something in August of 2019 painting Mike Brown as a victim uh, of, of, of police uh, brutality or, or, or unlawful action or, or, or police violence, which everybody in the world who's ever read anything or watched news knows is not the case. When when they say things like this, how would you explain? And, and, and what I would say is when they say these things, it only serves to embolden uh, the ideas and validate the ideas of people who have ill feelings towards law enforcement. Given all of this, what would you say to somebody in law enforcement who wanted maybe to vote for, for that ticket um, but was hesitant because of those things that are very personal to them? You know, I, I don't know because I, you know, uh, I have very different uh, political opinions than most of my brothers and sisters in law enforcement. Um, I, I I would just say that, I mean, I'm not one to really kind of try to push anybody into, uh, you know, voting or supporting in any specific way. I, I think I, I've, I've, uh, shied away from that most of my life because I don't like being told what to do, and I certainly don't like telling other people what to do. Um, but I would say that I support them because, uh, right or wrong, uh, with some of the things that they may have said, I think that they're on the that their heart is in the right place. Um, I think very inarticulately and sometimes poorly, they maybe have backed the wrong horse or um, have said things like you know shoot him in the leg, you know things that that are that are quite frankly, are just stupid, and they're Hollywoodish. Um, but I, I think what they want is they want some better accountability, and sometimes they're using poor examples of it, but I would rather have them err. I would rather err on that side for someone who I think is working towards accountability than someone who uh, just wants to maintain the status quo. And it may not. they may not say that everything that I agree with, but certainly... I agree with a lot more on their side of the issue than on the other side. Well, if um, it wasn't clear enough at the beginning of this little segment, I will say it again. We at the Square Peg Podcast don't do politics, but I found uh, I, I couldn't help myself because of the, this is an opportunity for me to ask this question of somebody uh, who really does have the most uh, unique perspective on such things, um, uh, more so than really anybody else I've had as a guest on this show. And with that, we're going to have to wrap things up. Uh, Las Cruces native retired police officer and in the next uh, seven eight months well will be somebody with the words or with the letters rn after his name michael kinney thank you for being my guest thank you for having me ladies and gentlemen we will see you next time on the next episode of the square peg podcast this has been an episode of the square peg podcast starring andrew lawrence and his cast of mold breakers trailblazers and takers of roads less traveled until then we'll see you on the next road less traveled <laughs>